Take our Bibles, we're back in Ephesians, and we're on to chapter 3 now. So take your Bibles and turn there, your iPhone, your iPad, whatever you're looking at. But I would encourage you, I really would encourage you to have a paper version of the Bible. Because I tell you what, you uh, when you're depending on electronic stuff, uh, it's easy to get there, it's easy to find, but you, you know what happens? You don't really know your Bible. Um, if somebody gave you a paper version and said, you know, look up Leviticus or look up, uh, you know, Jeremiah or look up some uh, Amos, uh, uh, and you can't find it. So uh, I would encourage you to use a paper version uh, bound Bible. I'm using the New American Standard 95, and if you are, you can still have your iPod and, and you know, check out things if you want to, uh, but uh, I encourage you to do that. And when I'm asking you to turn to a passage, uh, turn there. Remember, uh, expository listening should start at least today. We're, that's the book we're learning. If you read the back of the book, you prepare yourself before, during, and after, and then during the week uh, after the sermon, right? That's the best you're going to get out of it if you do that. If people follow what we're going to study in this book, it, it'll transform your life. Uh, it really would. But this morning, let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 3. Before I go there, let's have a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the privilege to have it. We thank you, Lord, for a country that still allows us to read it, study it, preach it. Uh, and I pray, Lord, we will continue that. And if it need be that they don't allow us, we'll still do it, do it anyway because we're, you're a higher authority than our government. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would give us the boldness to do it if, if the grip gets tight around us. And I pray that you would uh, help us every day to realize that uh, suffering may be a part will be a part of all those who desire to live godly. And so, Lord, I pray you'd make us ready by the word of God now, that we would have preventive medicine uh, in Scripture to live our life seriously, soberly, uh, wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would live uncompromisingly in this world and not be ashamed of our Christian faith, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, or to live for him and be bold for him. I pray, Lord, make us those kind of people. Because we know, Lord, those are the only kind of people that make a change in the world and um, are not afraid because they know whose side they're on. And so bless us today and open thy word to us in Christ's name. Amen. So chapter 3, chapter 3, uh, here we are, uh, and so far... Scripture has been laying out for us this grand position Christians have. They have been elected, they have been called, they have, um, as God's blood-bought children, and Scripture has also begun to unveil a great mystery hidden in past ages, but now revealed to the people of God, which is simply this, the Jews and Gentiles in one unified body, that here in chapter 3 of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul continues with that theme. He continues with that and expands upon it in chapter 3. But before he goes on with that theme, he deals with something else. 
You may have missed it if you have been reading here. He, there's a parenthesis before us, and it's a parenthesis before continuing with the great mystery once hidden, now revealed. What does he deal with? Well, it is something a shepherd detects that has the possibility of causing confusion in the body or even possibly causing some believers to stumble in their faith. In fact, it is a subject that has caused much stir among the faithful, especially if the sheep have been listening to, thinking about, and even grasping the grand position that they have as believers in Christ Jesus, and they are thinking about it and anticipating the spiritual richness of the Christian life. Well, you may be saying, well, what do you mean? What, What are you talking about? I'm talking about what Paul brings up in verse number 1 and what he brings up in verse number 13. If you notice here in verse number 1, it says, For this reason, I, Paul, and notice this, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He brings up, he's a prisoner. Now, if you are living a grand, glorious life and you're thinking about all the grand, great things God has done for you, it's not so grand to think about being a prisoner. So he brings that up. And then look at verse 13. He says this, Therefore I ask you, Not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. See, I'm talking about that Paul brings up being a prisoner, that he is suffering and has tribulations for them because of the gospel. And so, he doesn't want them to be troubled or confused as Christians so often do when this subject comes up. See, here's the difficulty. The difficulty is this. How do I reconcile the grand position I have as a Christian with suffering, with tribulation, with being a prisoner of Jesus Christ? How do you reconcile that? Well, the gospel of Jesus Christ and Paul being a good minister of it doesn't want them to stumble around in their faith Neither does he want us to stumble around in our faith, uh, but try to wrap our minds around it. The fact that God allows his people to suffer and the reality that God's people will have tribulation in this life. And one reason for suffering is so that we start paying attention to to what really matters, and so that we don't fall asleep and we stay alert. See, when you're not in a position where you're suffering, and you're comfortable, and you're cozy, then you don't. You actually start drifting off in doing your own thing and paying attention to the things you ought not to pay attention to. It's when there is pressure and tribulation and even suffering that comes into our life that begins to develop us in a way in Christ-likeness that nothing else can. It is this thing suffering. Let me just 
kind of offer you an analogy. An airline pilot guides his aircraft down in the muck, fully alert. He, he tries to land on his IFR. Now, of course, there will be only one person who knows what that is. Uh, two people, maybe. The instrument flight rules, that the windows might as uh, well not be in the plane. He's flying blind. He's totally dependent on his instruments and the signals that he receives from the control tower. He's checking his altimeter. He's checking his airspeed. He's checking his flaps, his yaw, his pitch. He's checking all his navigation indicators. He's checking his radar. He's checking, he's checking, he's checking, checking, and suddenly the air clears, and there's the runway, and immediately beneath the plane, uh, he sees the airstrip, and then he lands safely. He flies blind, yet it trusts something else. It keeps him on his toes. It keeps him alert. And then another beautiful clear day, the pilot comes in for a landing on his VFR, his visual flight rules, and he stops paying attention to what he's doing because it's so easy when you can see. And as a result, he comes in a, a bit too fast and a bit too rough and a, and the apparent VFR made the pilot a little sleepy and when he should have been alert. So he wasn't paying attention because he could see. And it was the pressure of depending on something else, the pressure of being in a situation that was not normal that caused him to be more alert, to pay attention, to pay attention more. So, see, suffering is one of those characteristics that will keep us alert. It will help us it will prevent us from sliding off into ignorance, sliding off into laziness and apathy and pride. See, suffering will also keep reminding us on whom we must depend. We live by faith, not by sight. We must depend on God. We must trust his word. And suffering is that thing that causes us to increase our faith because we must trust God. So God sometimes sends a little muck so we will pay closer attention to the way we are flying to the, and look closer at the way we are living and what we're focusing on and whom we're trusting. That's what it'll do. So let's face it. You and I have wondered about it. I've wondered about suffering uh, in the Christian world. Uh, even now with the, uh, like the two hurricanes that we have on our mind, Irene and Sandy, uh, right now, some of you may be going under ha certain trials, certain tribulations to one degree or another and experience some kind of disappointment or discouragement in your life. Whatever it may be, that has been placed there by our sovereign Lord. So we are not so comfortable. So we pay attention more to his word. So we take the more serious things seriously. But if the Apostle Paul is telling us in verse 13 not to lose heart concerning suffering, then there must be a proper way to think about it. There must be a proper way to think about this subject. There must be a biblical way to think about this subject. Now keep this in mind. The Apostle, the Apostle Paul did not bring being a prisoner up until chapter 3. 
That means that he made sure that he laid out the foundation of the grandeur of the new position we have in Christ and the new identity that we have before he ever broached the subject of suffering. Matter of fact, if you read other epistles, write in the first two verses, I'm a prisoner. He doesn't do it until chapter 3. He wants to make sure that the only way to look properly at suffering and tribulations is if your foundation is laid properly. He wants believers to rest upon certain truths. That the Apostle Paul wants us to know that the resurrection power that works within us as believers makes us able not only to look at suffering in a whole different manner, but also to handle it in the light of the doctrine of our new position in Christ. That's not going to change. Our new position is not going to change because of suffering. In fact, our new position in Christ equals suffering. He wants believers to rest upon the truth. Let's take our Bibles and look at a few verses of Scripture. Look at, look at t- 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through 12 that it's suffering that builds endurance and trust. It's suffering that shows us that we're triumphant in Christ. 2 Timothy 3, look at verse number 10. It says, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, and perseverance. And look at verse 11 of 2 Timothy 3. Persecutions and sufferings such as have, has happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Then verse number 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Is he just talking about the people right here uh, in this church at Ephesus, or is he talking about you? If you're a believer, you desire to be holy and you desire to live godly. That means if you do, you will suffer persecution. Mark it down. Mark it on your calendar. It's going to happen. At whatever level it may come in your life, and it may be a smaller level or a greater level or longer or shorter, whatever it is, we're triumphant in Christ. A second thing is truth to rest upon is that these trials are for the furtherance of the gospel. If you look at Philippians chapter 1, Paul says there in Philippians chapter 1, verse number 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, verse 13, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, suffering opened the door unexpectedly to all kinds of gospel opportunities. See, just because Paul was in prison, that doesn't mean that the gospel is shut in prison and nobody can hear him. He has no influence outside. He's winning the Praetorian Guard to Christ. The Praetorian Guard's going out, winning their families to Christ. See, the gospel's not bound. It's never bound. Don't ever think like that. It is never bound. In fact, when we're suffering, there's greater opportunity for gospel discussions than maybe ever you would have in your life. 
Because if you're dealing with the way God wants you to, people are going to wonder, how could you be going through this and have that attitude? I don't understand that. Well, I'll tell you why. Because I have a foundation that's sure. That's why. I have a Lord that's faithful, and I am triumphant, even though it looks in my my suffering like I'm not. I am. Because I'm bold in the message that saved my soul in Christ Jesus. And then, there's another truth to stand upon that comes right from Ephesians that we've been talking about. They are stable in Christ because they are living stones connected to the living stone. Remember the passage in verse 22 of Chapter 2 of Ephesians, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. See, as Christ identified with us by his suffering, so we are identified with Jesus by our suffering, and we begin to take on his character. So suffering cannot rob us from our position in Jesus Christ. That position is sure. In fact, the passage that he was referring to in Isaiah 28, he says this. He says this about Christ. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone. Right? In other words, Christ had to be tested. He had to be tried. He had to suffer to get that position, to become the cornerstone. Because he goes on to say, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed, he who believes in it will not be disturbed. Anybody who believes in this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, cannot be moved, cannot be disturbed, right? Because he was tested. So what is the condition in this passage of Scripture for someone Here is trust and belief in the cornerstone, that the cornerstone is clearly Jesus, that the Apostle Peter in this passage draws uh, from, or Paul, draws from the Old Testament uh, verse to point out that the prophet said that the people would reject this one whom uh, would build this house and the one who would be the cornerstone, and then we would be built into that home too. So Peter, or Psalm tells us that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. They rejected a suffering Messiah. And who rejected him? The Jews. The Jews could not get their minds around the idea of a suffering Messiah. Someone who's going to deliver me. Why does he have to suffer too? A suffering Messiah was unacceptable to the Jews. That's why they rejected him. They wanted a powerful, political leader, religious leader that was going to topple the powers to be at that time. And Jesus Christ came as a servant. Why? Because that's what the prophet said. He was going to be a suffering servant to deal with the issue of the penalty and the payment of the price of sin so we can be set free. See, the cost was way higher than they would ever expect. See, my point is this. As the chief cornerstone suffers, all the stones connected to the chief cornerstone can't expect to suffer. See, this is a great mystery. Somehow suffering connects Christ to us and us to Christ. And this is what enables us both to know that he shares our experience of suffering and we share his sufferings in glory. That suffering is what made Jesus the foundation stone of his people. And suffering is also what makes us the stones that are built 
into that foundation. In fact, this, this is all over Scripture. Peter, in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeals among you which come upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you, but to the degree that you are sharing the sufferings of Christ. Keep on rejoicing. Keep on rejoicing. So see, during the sermon, you ought to pay attention to the Scripture and to your own, bi- own Bible so you learn that someday that you're not going to be taken by surprise at some ordeal that comes your way that's been ordered by your Lord in your life and not taken by surprise. In fact, you're going to be rejoicing when it happens because that's the way to look at it. See, the testing here in Peter is for us because we don't know who we are. So we must be tested. Pressed. So that we know ourselves. Testing is the means of demonstrating that our faith is valid and genuine. Every Christian will be tested. So you yourself know you're a believer. You have to know that you're a believer as time goes on. And there's nothing going to be more that's going to prove that than suffering. Suffering also is the proving ground of the the genuineness of your relationship uh, with Jesus Christ. Look look at 1 Peter with me. Chapter 1, verse 7. 1 Peter 1, verse 7. Peter there, of course, talks a lot about suffering in his epistles because he's talking to the scattered Jews, the scattered believers uh, all over uh, Pontus and Cappadocia and all in the the regions of their time. So they were suffering. They were ostracized. They, they They lost jobs. They lost opportunities. They lost the future. They lost their ability to be identified in the synagogue. They lost a lot of things. Uh, and so he is writing to them, and notice what he says, First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found as to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Everywhere you look, when the Bible talks about suffering believers, not suffering for your evil and your wickedness or your breaking the law, suffering because you're a believer. Suffering because you want to do what is right. Suffering with the attitude that you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. How, how is that possible? This scripture raises the question, how can anyone rejoice in sufferings? Although I don't fully understand how this can be possible, I do know that the Word of God has much to say about suffering. So today I will not have time to address the, the whole subject, 
But I do want to connect it with our text in Ephesians because the great apostle with his pastor's heart wants to head off at the past confusion concerning this subject. That suffering is somehow connected to the glory of God and the benefit of the saints. That we can be sure that the saints who have been elected before the foundation of the world, who have been set apart to be holy and blameless, who have been accepted by the Father in the beloved Jesus Christ, can expect to suffer. Yes, just thinking about it again, in in whom Christ purchased eternal redemption. Those who are saints, remember I started off, those who are faithful, those who are in Christ, those who are chosen, those who are adopted, those who are accepted of the beloved can expect to suffer. Can't get around it anywhere in Scripture. Can't get around it. But soon as what happens is that as soon as we get into trouble or we feel the pressure come on, you know what we do? We ask everybody in the world to pray for us, that God would deliver us from this suffering. When, you know what, it may not be prayer you should be asking for. Or the, what you should be asking for is, Lord, what are you teaching me during this time of suffering? And, Lord, let me learn it and become more Christ-like so I can be more bold in my witness for you. So, 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 that, so that means that suffering is used by our loving God for our benefit and our knowledge that God is showing us to be approved enables us to have a certain kind of joy in suffering. In other words, the, the way I know that when the pressure is turned up and tribulations come into my life or your life, the way I know I'm handling, handling it correctly is my joy is intact. My understanding of what, about who's doing this or allowing this is there. I'm not taking the tailspin. I am actually resting in the Lord. See, so the power of God enables us to rejoice in suffering. Again, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says this, Who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? In verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. You know, uh, you may not have heard this person, but uh, because he's written a book some 40-some years ago, his name is Pastor Warmbrand. He's the one who started Voice of the Martyrs. If you ever get that magazine, it's an incredible magazine about the suffering going on uh, for Christians all over the world. These are true up-to-date stories, and some of them are horrendous. Right now, in our modern-day world, people are being persecuted, tortured, killed, just because they believe in Christ, just because they hold a Bible, just because they went to church to worship. Whole towns are being wiped out because of it, because of that. So you know that there's some spiritual satanic power behind this that they would be killed or tortured in some manner. Pastor Richard 
Warmbrand, who experienced months of solitary confinement, years of periodic torture and uh, physical torture, and a constant suffering from hunger and cold and mental cruelty for 14 years in communist prisons. Uh, his crime, like a thousand others, his fervent belief in Jesus Christ and his public witness concerning his faith. He couldn't, he couldn't stop talking about Christ. No matter what, where he was, he, he was talking about Christ. When he went to prison, he was still talking about Christ, but they found that in prison they really couldn't do anything about it. <laughs> he was a Romanian pastor in the underground church. And this is what he observed, and that's why I'm saying this. This is what he observed. He says, I have found, and I quote, I have found truly joyful Christians only, only in the Bible, in the underground church, and in prison. Why, 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 why is that? Why, why would he say that? I, I believe why he is saying that is because the only way you can understand what you really have in Christ is if you are some, in some kind of tribulation or suffering and realize that this life is, is short and this world is passing away. So why would I want to invest in that? It's putting my eggs in a basket with holes. It's all going to crumble and crash and break and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't be Humpty Dumpty back together again if you understand what I mean. See, he is, he is hitting it on the nail. He is hitting it right where it ought to be hit. Listen, a Christian is someone who is in Christ, and if your master suffered, you will suffer too. So one way to relieve the stress of suffering and not lose heart is to understand some reasons for suffering while never forgetting your new unchangeable position in Jesus Christ as the cornerstone and as you being part of the building, that suffering is in the purview of God's will. It was Peter who said this in 1 Peter 4.19, Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Johnny Mack, John MacArthur, writes a little book called God's Will Found. I don't know if you ever read it, but it's a really good book. It's a small little book. And he says pr pretty much in there, you want to know the will of God? Here's the will of God. It's God's will to be saved. It's God's will to be spirit-filled and word-filled. It's God's will to be sanctified. It's God's will to be submitting. It's God's will to be serving. And it's God's will to be suffering. It's God's will for his people to suffer. See, faith tested by suffering. Let me give you a few reasons why. Faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of first purification. If you look at 1 Peter 1, verse 7, and take your Bibles and turn there, is purification, for he says in verse number 7, of 1 Peter 1, chapter 1, verse 7, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, verse 7, so that the proof of your faith being 
more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, the scripture is saying that fire purifies gold. That gold-bearing rock is extremely valuable, but in order to separate the gold from the worthless rock, it must be put into intense heat. And when it is, the dross is consumed and the gold is refined. So too, God is willing to expose us to suffering because it burns off the part of us that is not glorious. Through sufferings, the Holy Spirit purges our old sinful nature. The selfish me who wants to be the center of the universe. And as this selfish me is progressively killed off by suffering, it allows the Spirit of Jesus within us to be more noticeable. See, God is going to bring suffering for your purification, for the purification of your thoughts, for the purification of your control of your body, knowing how to possess your vessel, as Paul says in Thessalonians, in sanctification and honor. That the, uh, the fruit of the Spirit of God is self-control. Are you in control of you? Are you in control of your thoughts? Are you in control of your body? Are you in control of your passions? Are you in control of the things that the Spirit of God gives you control of? Because if you are not, then there's going to be something that comes into your life that's going to bring you under a testing or pressure, and the heat's going to be raised in your life. So what? God can bring all that dross, all that unholiness that is in your life to the surface and get it out. Why? So you can be more effective for Christ. So you can live this. Remember, we're not only elect before the foundation of the, of the world for salvation, we're, left, left, we're elect to be blameless and what? Holy! They go together. You cannot separate one from the other. If you're a believer, these things will happen. The Lord will bring suffering for your purification. And he'll bring suffering too uh, about how you're treating and honoring others. Uh, there's many reasons why he may do it, but how are you treating other people? How are you treating husbands? How are you treating your wife? Wife, how are you treating your husbands? Moms, how are you treating your kids? Kids, how are you treating your parents? You say you're a believer. And you're completely rebellious, disrespectful, wanting to do your own thing. See, how... Those things, God knows about those things. If you say you're a believer, he's going to get those things out of your life. He's going to bring it to your attention. See, it's not going to be your parents. It's going to be God you have to deal with in suffering. It's not going to be someone else. It's going to be the Lord himself that is going to bring us to the place where he's constantly making us ready for his presence till the only thing we have to drop off is our bodies. See, so faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of purification. Secondly, faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of weaning you from the world. Weaning you from the world. You know the passage of Scripture in 1 John. Do not love the world 
Yeah, you, you ever ask yourself this? Why does the Bible say, don't love the world? You know why it says that? Because we love the world. That's pretty simple, isn't it? But see, we don't consider ourselves as people who love the world. How could you not love the world if you're in the world? All you know is the world. And there's many things in the world that are very enticing, very beautiful, very attractive. But you know what? For a believer, they're not. See, if this world's not grow, if this gold of this world's not growing dim in the light of his wonderful face, as the hymn writer writes, then you may love the world, at least some things in the world. But remember what the Bible says, that if anyone loves the world, that the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if someone loves the world, to this extent, they're not believers. I was talking with Brian before, and he says, you know, some people will say, you ask him, oh, um, do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. A lot of people will say, I believe in Jesus. But if you ask them this, don't ask them that. Ask them this, are you a disciple of Jesus? They may ask you, well, what do you mean by that? Well, are you a present, everyday follower of Christ, loving him and following his word. If you're not that, you're not a believer. Doesn't matter how many times you confess Christ. Christ is someone in my life every day. He's perfecting you and me every day. He's involved with your life every single day, and he is bringing trouble and trials into your life to make you realize that this world is not worth living for. There's nothing like pain to make a true believer turn away from this age and focus more surely on the age to come. That's why we not only have faith, but we have hope, right? Hope means the reality of the thing is not here yet. But because of the character and nature of God that we can trust Him, we hope for the reality that will be, right? Someday, our faith will be sight and our hope will be reality. Right? That's true. See, that's where we're living at right now. We're living by faith. We're living with the desire to hope for the things that God has promised us. So while on this earth, even living in this comfortable land called the United States of America, we are still in enemy territory. We are still not home. And we dare not get too comfortable. And sufferings for that purpose. Must I remind you over and over again, and must the scripture remind us, and I say yes, that we're not, we're, this is not our homeland. We are aliens. We are strangers to this present world. But we are not aliens and strangers to the kingdom of God. That's where we're heading. That's our hope, the kingdom of God. So, you see, it's, it's hard for us to desire our eternal home whose builder and maker is God when our lives are too cozy and too comfortable. And everything is just going fine, well, and dandy. See, why invest in something that's temporary? Why not invest in the eternal? That's why he says in 1 John 2, verse 17, the world is passing away and also, what? It's lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. So if you lose all your retirement, 
It may be a possibility. If you get to the place where Social Security is not there anymore, then it's not there anymore, right? If you're living for the dream of America, and that's what you're doing, your pursuit every day is to make it, as, as in terms of, of how the world thinks you should make it or defines how you make it, then you're going to lose out on the kingdom of God. Matter of fact, it may be that you love the world. You know, it's, it's, it's striking in Scripture that Scripture has no concept of retirement. There's not one passage in the Bible that says that we're, we're, it's our right to be able to have enough to retire. Nowhere in Scripture. That's, that's a, you know what that is? That's an American, pretty much American concept. You know, that we're, in, we're entitled to these things. We're, entitled, we're not entitled to anything. You know, we're entitled, we're, we're entitled to live for, for Christ and suffer. And to do that with joy. That's what we're entitled to. See, so faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of weaning you from the world. Getting your eyes off the things of the world and off what the world says is important and off the goals of the world and get them on to Christ. Fix your eyes on Christ. And believe me, when you live for Christ, this is the amazing thing. Christ, he takes care of everything. I, I don't really, really, I, I, I've never really met a Christian who really was in deep want when they're living for Christ because you know what they say? You know what? I have everything I need. At one time, I had to have this and I had to have this and I had to buy the, the latest cars and, and you know, I had to make my home better and, and all these kind of things. And, and that's what dr- drove them. And that's where all their money went too. Then they came to Christ and they started realizing those things aren't really important. Those are, oh, those are none of the kind of things I want to live and die for. They're only for us now, given to us by our Lord to make life uh, somewhat enjoyable. It comes from him. I don't seek after these things like the Gentiles do. I seek after the kingdom of God and God provides them. That's the biblical concept. And I rest in him. I mean, we, we can die penniless, not, not two pennies to rub together, and you know what? Be filled with joy. Because you know what? We were never home. But we're going home. And that's why when you look at Revelation, the home we're going to, Jesus went and prepared a place for us. right? And if he, he went and prepared a place for us, he will come and get us and take us with him. And then in Revelation, it describes streets of gold and, and uh, you know, all kinds of precious gems everywhere and, and the, the, tre- the streets lines with the tree of life and, and the glory of God in its midst and there's no moon and there's no sun because God's in our midst and he's our God and we're his people. Man, that is what our hope is. And that hope will be a reality. See, in suffering, if we're not thinking of those things, we'll be crushed we will be in a place where we will be disheartened to the place we won't be functionable. Somebody who's depressed and discouraged like that, they are not functioning on all cylinders. Not that I've never been depressed or discouraged or disillusioned. I have been, and so have you. 
But the more I learn Scripture, the more I understand what God says here, the more my faith is increasing because of what I'm understanding about God, and the more my hope for what I really desire now to be with the Lord forever, it seems like uh, I'm handling it better. I'm, I'm seeing it the way the Word of God lays it out. So see, there's one last thing I want to share with you. And it's this, that faith tested by suffering is for the purpose of preparing you for glory. Now I want you to turn back to Ephesians chapter 3 because this is exactly what Paul says. And this is what he wants the people to know. He wants them to know something. And he says this in in verse number 13. Notice what he says in Ephesians 3. He says, therefore, he's concluding all that he said from verse 1 to uh, really the beginning of the book till this verse. He says, therefore, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations on your behalf, for they are your glory. They're they're your glory. Now remember, I said that God has inherent glory that comes from inside of him. We don't have that. His nature, it comes comes from inside of his nature. We have reflected glory. That is the glory that comes from another that comes from outside of us. So it is the glory, in other words, Paul wants his disciples to see the glory of God shining through his imprisonment and his sufferings that is beneficial for the Ephesians and for us and brings glory to God. Paul is simply saying this, listen, when you look at me and I'm in prison, he wants them to know this, that the glory of God is reflected in the kind of prisoner he is. Look what it says in verse 13, chapter 3, verse 1. Look what it says. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of the Roman government. Does it say that? It says the prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. In other words, Paul, the persecutor of the church, the hater of Jesus Christ, now has become the lover of Jesus Christ, and he knows whom he's a prisoner of. He is not a prisoner of of because he committed a crime he is not a prisoner of the roman government he is a prisoner of jesus christ and willing prisoner of jesus christ a second thing i want you to notice that this glory is reflected in the changed direction of his new life in christ verse number third one it says this for this reason i paul a prisoner of jesus christ for the sake of you gentiles paul hated the gentiles now he's a lover of the gentiles and he's willing to go to present prison for them, and he's willing to preach the gospel wherever they are so they are delivered from darkness to the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's willing to do that. So he goes from a hater of Christ to a lover of Christ. He goes from a hater of the Gentiles to a lover of the Gentiles. And he is different. See, there's the glory reflected in the suffering and in the imprisonment. If Paul was complaining and writing letters to the governor about getting out, if he was sending uh, hate messages to that uh, this is unjust, I shouldn't be in prison, and all these, he didn't do any of that kind of stuff. This is what he says, my Lord, whom I'm prisoner of, wants me right here, right now. And I'm most effective right in this place. 
I know my position in Christ. I know who I am in Christ. And I know who I'm a prisoner of. So therefore, I can rest in my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and do what he wants me to do wherever he has me. And that's where the glory of God is reflected off his life. And people are saying, if Paul deals with it like that, then I ought to deal with it like that too. I see more of Christ in someone who's suffering and in prison than I see somebody who's got, is comfortable and has everything they want in this world. I don't see no glory there. In fact, ultimately, it's a glory that we can't see sometimes. And that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. See, we see where he says this, you know, we see, when we see, look at people who are suffering, you know what we see? We see suffering. That's what we see, but what we do not see is the glory. We must understand the physical, that visible present suffering in the light of the visible future glory, and, and that's why Paul writes to this in First Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, where he says, for momentary Light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension while we look not at the things which are seen, that's the suffering, but at the things which are not seen for the things which are seen are temporal and the things which are not seen are eternal. See, so Paul is saying there, listen, uh, you see the glory in my kind of prisoner I am in the changed direction of my life also you see part of it you don't see but you know from the word of God that it's only momentary it's only for a short period of time and it's not going to be eternal the eternal glory is coming which will be reflected in our life and then he finally says this it's also reflected in a changed character because suffering will change your character where he says in Romans 5, chapter 5, verse 3, and not only this, he says in Romans 5, but we also exult in our tribulations. We glory in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings what? Perseverance, right? And perseverance brings proven character. And proven character brings what? Hope. There it is. It's the, it's the hope of what's coming. A hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. We, it builds our hope. So all these positive effects of suffering assume that the sufferer relates this suffering to his relationship with God through Christ. And unless... A sufferer is clinging to Christ. He or she is not going to persevere and will not develop the character of Jesus, but will abandon all hope. And that's what Paul doesn't want his people to do. So he brings it up. So see, Christ is the primary focus of the meaning of believer's suffering. He's the focus of it. And the suffering of Christ has linked him to us, and our suffering links us to him. And it is only in Christ that Christian suffering has any true meaning at all. Apart from Christ, it is meaningless. It could be any kind of suffering. It could be sickness. 
It could be a loss of a job. It could be some handicap. It could be trying relationships. It could be just simply wanting to live godly and everybody out around you is just giving you hell for that, literally. Not going with your friends you used to go with anymore and they're just mocking you and saying, ah, what are you doing, you little puritanical whatever, you know? And you see, you're getting more serious about living for Christ and you're, re- you're receiving pressure. And even this morning, if you're in Sunday school and John MacArthur's preaching that message today, all right, if the grip is tightening in our culture that we are living in a very liberal country in which uh, have adopted a Romans chapter 1 mandate, then Christians are going to be the minority. And so therefore the suffering may come into the church because we're simply preaching the word of God. And uh, that may come quicker than we think. Actually, when I was in uh, doing a coursework, one of my friends that was sitting next to me in class was from Canada. And one of the pastors in his town was put in jail because he was preaching on the homosexual uh, agenda from Romans chapter 1 and imprisoned for it. So that's not very far away in our country, the way it's going. And, and so, remember, it's not a political matter. That's, it's a biblical matter. And so, see, you and I may be called upon in some way, in some measure, to suffer, and it may take many forms, it may take many shapes, it may be short, it may be lifelong, it may be heavy, it may be light. See, whatever the case, believers do not need to remain surprised or fear their new position in Christ has changed because of it, or that somehow God's against you because suffering or tribulation has come, but he reminding us, no, it proved, it's a test. It's proving who you are. It's developing your character. And so instead, to remain alert and to know that the resurrection power that works within us as believers makes us able not only to look at suffering in a whole different manner, but also to handle it in the light of the doctrine of our new position in Christ. And that's why he puts it at chapter 3 and not in chapter 1. He wants them to know that. So they're not toppled over when, when it hits. Right? And that's what we're called to. But believe me, we have a glorious future. And I wouldn't give my Christian life up for any other life. You can give me all the money in the world. I don't want it. I want Christ. Because you know what? When you have Christ, you can't get richer than that. Because you're, co- you, you're co-heirs with Christ. That means what he owns, you own. He owns the universe. Well, so do I. That's why I say to people, I'm the richest person in the world. And all God's people said, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the word of God. Lord, I so much appreciate it because it's so adjusts us it corrects our wrong thinking it drives out of us a wrong view of life and Lord it it humbles us to realize how grand and glorious the Christian life is and and what hope we, we actually have in Christ and Lord it makes you great and Lord if you call upon us in some way some measure to suffer Help us to go to these passages. And I pray, Lord, the glory of God would be reflected in our life when we go through that time.
and that you would be honored with us. And Lord, it would, make, it would give us opportunities to share with people otherwise we wouldn't be able to share with or maybe we would have never met. Lord, please use us in that manner. And Lord, when it tests our faith and gives us the assurance that we truly are a believer because we have been rejoicing uh, what we're, by what we were going through, then Lord, again, you receive the glory. And Lord, it also increases our faith and gives us the hope of what's to be. And so, Lord, we want to live there. We don't want to invest our life in something that's passing away. We want to invest our life in something that is eternal, and that's the kingdom of God. And you're the king of the kingdom. And Lord, we thank you for saving us. We thank you for the gospel. And Lord, if someone doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior and doesn't know that if they die today, they go with you, please, Lord, bring them to salvation and repentance and faith and cause them to believe. Please, Lord. And I just pray this in uh, Christ's name. And Lord, this morning as we think of the Lord's table, um, one of the means of grace that you have given us in the church so that your people don't forget the merits of Christ, that your shed blood has blotted out our guilt and, and your endurance in the suffering has set us free and you have borne the condemnation and satisfied divine justice for our sake. Lord, when we take, take the Lord's table, now, let us never forget that. So Lord, you invite us to sit at peace with you at your table. You extend your hand to us as your children to take the bread and eat it and drink, take the cup and drink it. And I pray, Lord, that you would accept, we would accept your invitation to be partakers of this meaningful meal uh, as your guests that have been made worthy by the blood of Christ. So let us not grieve or quench you in this regard, but willing to submit to you until we sit with Jesus at his heavenly feast in the Father's kingdom. I pray that for us today, Lord. So make us ready today to partake of the Lord's table. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.